Hello and welcome to the Star Wars Universe Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jeff Randall as we continue our trek through the Star Wars movies. Uh, we're taking a look at one of the lesser known, not very often talked about, but maybe quoted once or twice movies in the Star Wars oeuvre, which is of course, The Empire Strikes Back. All that and more after a commercial break, over which we have no control. back. I'm Matthew Westfox. I'm your host. I'm joined, as always, for movies by Jeff Randall. Jeff, how are we doing tonight? Oh, it's not just movies, sir, but I'm doing pretty good. This is true. This is true. Um, Starting in October, we're probably going to take a break for um the movies, wherever we are. Because what's happening in October, Jeff? The end of that month. <gasps> oh, my God. October 30th, man. We got Mando Season 2. Mandalorian Season 2. We're going to find out exactly when those episodes are dropping. I think what we're going to try and do is, at least I will... Do a live chat during the um the the first w- chance to watch the episode, uh, and then record as, as soon as we can after it. Schedules have to be matched up and all that, but we are super excited to bring you new content on uh, the Mandalorian season two. So many Do great you- things. I haven't seen the trailers yet. I've been kind of trying to keep myself off that, but I know there's so much to be super excited about and just oh, new man. Star Wars content. How can you go wrong? That trailer. Oh, that trailer's so good. Okay. Okay. I've heard good things. Don't tell me anything. Okay. Okay. Um, so, Child hits a button. <laughs> let's talk about uh, Empire Strikes Back, because clearly this is, I think, not universally, but regarded by many people as the best, certainly the, often regarded as the best of the trilogy, the original trilogy, and, and by many, I think, regarded as the best of all the movies. And certainly one of the most talked about, one of the most quoted. Um, and that's, I think, by many of us, one of the most seen. So looking back at it, especially as we watch it again, like with kind of a you know critical eye to, to look at it through this, what, what are your kind of general thoughts on the movie? What What is it meant for you as, as a kid now? Where do you place it? I would say that this movie is definitely the better one mm-hmm. of all of them. Um, I know that there's a lot of a lot of contention between uh, Jedi and this one and, you know, maybe the original. But like, let's be real. This movie had one of the biggest turns, one of the biggest reveals and and just gut-punching moments in the history of cinema and like that's not for nothing you know that does that that counts for something right do you remember being gut-punched by it i don't i don't remember being gut-punched by it because it like i don't remember the first time i saw this movie i do remember there being a time where i was like i didn't really care too much about watching star wars movies but mm-hmm. like every time i went back to watch it i was just like "Ooh, that hurts yeah I, I, so i i'm a very big fan of this movie i think it is really up there and i think i would say that from a technical objective perspective i think this and rogue one are the two best movies of all of them i certainly think this is the technically best movie of the original three uh, yes. and the fact that it's not written by george lucas is probably a big part of that <laughs> i I feel like it has never been my personal favorite, in part because I feel like I never, like like you, I'm too young to have remembered my first time seeing it. So I don't remember the first time I saw it and was like, oh my God, that's who it is. Right. Um, and, and there's something about it that just never quite grabbed me emotionally the way the other two did. I think partially because it's it's the downer movie, you know, it, 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 it ends on a really down note um, with some positives and a lot of potential and... The more I see it as an adult, the more I appreciate it um, for reasons we're going to get into. It mostly about 
because I come to much more appreciate Vader's character arc in this, and I'll talk about that later because I think he's a very pronounced one. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, it's kind of in this weird middle space for me where I didn't watch it as an adult the way I did about Rogue One, and I had a totally different set of things to bring to it. And as a kid, I think like maybe some of it went over my head. Um, like, certainly, I heard that line, I love you, I know, and I didn't really get the understanding of it till I was probably a teenager, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's all we say, like, I, I'm not being critical of it. I think it is still a very good movie. I will happily watch it anytime it's on. I think it's technically one of the best. I think that's why it's probably, you know, I think it's still in my top five. But I think it's it would probably, be, for me, be behind Last Jedi, Rogue One, uh, A New Hope, uh, and maybe one or two others. Okay. Okay. Hmm. I can see that. I can see that. Um, They're actually saying that you're, there you're isn't one or two others. Like, dissenting opinion. Say again. You're allowed to have a dissenting opinion. It's <laughs> exactly, okay. Exactly. I'm just. I'm. I'm trying to find a way that I can agree with you, other than like just to say this one by itself is, of course, better than the entire, um, the entire prequel trilogy. Like hands oh, yeah. down. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no contest, but. You know, I could see how, like, some of the newer stuff could be, you know, a little more fun, a little more hopeful. This one, like you said, is a very downer movie. This is effectively act two of a three-act movie where everything goes wrong for the heroes. Yeah, I mean, having said what I just said, I realize there really isn't one or two more. I think it it would be solidly my number four. You know, Last Jedi, Rogue One, and A New Hope are all ahead of it, but then it's probably it and Jedi are probably tied for, for four. Um, okay. And yeah, it's, I think it's better than any of the prequels. It's better than two of the postquels. And I know my loving of Last Jedi is pretty controversial in and of itself. Um, but I think that's part of what I'm getting at here is I will never, if someone says to me, Empire Strikes Back is a much better movie than A New Hope or Last Jedi or Rogue uh, except for Rogue One, I won't argue with them because I don't doubt right. that it is. I think it is just a technically better movie. Um, yeah. It just it doesn't yeah. have the emotional pull for me. And that, to me, that's one of the fun things we're exploring here is so much of this is about when did we see it and what was our first reaction to it? That's that's fair. Um, I think a lot of this, a lot of the, the discussion around this movie uh, compared, like if we're comparing, uh, if we say if we didn't have any of the rest of them, if we're, you know, way back in 1980, uh-huh. <laughs> seven years before I was born, um when this movie comes out and all we have to compare it to is the one before it. I think that this movie is a lot better paced is, um, uh, not as, it doesn't drag the whole thing out as much. I think they're about the same time frame, if I'm not mistaken, or time, uh, like runtime. That's the word. Um, I think they're around the run, the same runtime, if I'm not mistaken. Comparing Um, it to a new hope. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But this one just feels like it gets everything done faster yeah, and and is is a lot more snappy. Like even just the opening crawl, there's nothing that's left up to having to remember. There's nothing that's left to the audience to like yeah. piece together. It's like, here's here's how things have been since the last one to this one. Things are still going nutso. There are probes being sent out. They're on Hoth. It's an icy planet. Let's go. And then you're right into it. You know what I think it may be? I think, like, and this is, again, part of why I'm praising it. Of the first six movies, like, before you get into the post I think this is far and away the most adult of them. Like, I think yes. it has the most adult themes. 
like I said, I, I, it wasn't until much later when I was talking with my friend, um, Paul Hoppy, who's the, uh, been, uh, on this show and on superhero ethics a lot. I think actually one of the first really like great conversations he and I had is where he convinced me that Darth Vader is the protagonist of this movie in many ways. Um, you know, not the hero by any means, but that it's his story of his trying to figure out what he wants to do with his son and with the emperor. And as a kid, I missed all of that. You know, I think there's so much depth to this movie that as a kid I missed. And so I think that's why it doesn't hold the same emotional appeal. But on the same level, also, my favorite toy as a kid was my X-Wing. And in this movie <laughs> I was watching, there is never a time where an X-Wing fires a shot. Oh, yeah. Not once. There's just no yeah. X-Wing combat battles, you know. There's not really any big starfighter battles. There's the... um Millennium Falcon basically being chased by Star Destroyers and TIE Fighters and occasionally attacking them directly. Um, and there's some great flying. But I think this is the only movie out of all nine in which there isn't some big epic space battle. Um, and I think it's why for me as a kid, it just didn't hit me in the same way. Yeah. Yeah, and it... You know, like I said, it's the it's it's the second act of that that three-act movie where, you know... Return of the Jedi is going to be the, you know, the big finale of the of the thing. And you can like you can feel it with mm-hmm. with this movie. Like it feels like everything is getting into place and just kind of all throughout. There's this tension that's building. Yeah. Like even when Luke, um, you know, when he he gets into his X-Wing and he's like, OK, we're going to set a new course. And R2's like. You know, he's doing his beeps that say, no, we have to go meet up with everybody. There's a rendezvous point. You haven't told anybody your plan. What are you doing? Yeah. And he's just like, now nah, we're going to the Dagobah system. You can feel like there's a notch higher on the tension yeah. that's going. And then it just increases steadily as the movie progresses until right at the end, everything has gone to shit. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yeah, and and like I said, I I think if I saw this movie as an adult, I would it would be hand, hands down my favorite. Um, yes, you know, because yeah. I think in, in the same way that I feel like if I had seen either Rogue One or Last Jedi as a child, I probably wouldn't have liked those movies at all. Because um, there's so much complexity, there's so much depth that to a six year old would not make any sense. Yeah, and Rogue One has you know all of your your quote unquote heroes die. Yeah, <laughs> like that's no fun. That's no fun at all for a little kid. Yeah. I mean, and in some levels, that's like this movie ends on a a down note, but also like there's a lot of hope in the end, you know, in a way there isn't in at the end of Rogue One. I mean, there's literal hope at the end of it. But, you know, here at the end, like Luke was defeated by Vader, but he got away. You know, the Millennium Falcon has Han has been captured, but everyone else is away. And we have the sense of like, we're going to go rescue him now. Um, You know, it's just it's a very it's an interesting sort of like optimism in the face of a lot of darkness note that I think is fantastic now and just went over my head as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and more to the point on, uh, on it being a Vader movie. If you, if you look back at, um, a new hope, Vader was just an imposing force, you know, jerk. Yeah. Uh, and then in this movie, he's got so much more to do Yeah. so much. Like he's actually plotting things and, He's having conversations that are not him giving orders and, you know, choking people and and telling them what to do. Like the conversation with the emperor where the emperor is like, this is your this is the son of Anakin Skywalker, not even telling him like, you know, he's your son, obviously 
he knows that he is talking about like his past self, but yeah. it's like, this is a scun- the son of Anakin Skywalker. Like he cannot be allowed to become a Jedi. And then Vader has the, the, the thought of, well, if we could turn him, you know, I won't have to kill him, but he could be a powerful ally. He will, you know, he'll join us or die. And seeing this villain have pathos, have, you know, more to do on screen instead of just twist his metaphorical mustache is so much scarier. Yeah. And like, I have so many thoughts on that scene. I both versions of that scene, because that scene is changed for these new versions. Um, but let's, let's kind of go, uh, and let's, do you have any other general things to say about the movie before we start going point by point? Cause we will get to Vader to be sure. No, no, not, not general thoughts. No. I think the other thing I would say, and this is again, my like trying just for a moment to tear away all my nostalgia love and just look at it critically. The empire strikes back is a terrible name for a movie. (laughs) Like it has become so beloved to us now. And all we ever call it is empire, you know, or like strikes back and it just is resonance. But when you say the full name, you're just like, Oh God, that's horribly clunky, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. And it's not really even accurate. Yeah. Like anyway. All right. So <laughs> let's just get into the kind of the setup in the beginning. Um, I really love the crawl because, and this is something we've talked about on some other uh, podcasts and you know, have been on, but um, as well as some stuff on superhero ethics. I think there's often this idea of like you win the big battle and so now everything is fine, you know, and the the question yeah. become what happens after the big battle at the end of new hope. It feels like we've won. The empire has been defeated instead of actually like the empire is just as strong as it is. It's just that their one new toy has been blown up. Right. And I love how much this movie reminds us of that very quickly. Like before we only saw this tiny little picture of a bunch of, you know, hard scrabble rebels fighting the, the empire. But actually, there's just this huge galactic war that's going on, and the rebellion's been getting its ass kicked all along. Um, and I just think that 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 the opening scroll and the Battle of Hoth just does such a good job of establishing that. You know, it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of funny the the opening crawl here uh, kind of completely discounts all of the actions of Rogue One mm-hmm. because, like, you know, destroying the Death Star was such a big accomplishment in A New Hope. But then this opening crawl is just like, yeah, but that, I mean, that was a minor stumble for the empire. (laughs) Like who cares? (laughs) Like they're still, they're still chasing the rebellion and got them on the ropes. It's like, okay, well everything in rogue one was pretty much for nothing. (laughs) Great. I mean, I think, I think it's supposed to be like, you know, the empire has you on the ropes and they almost hit you with a knockout blow and you prevented the knockout blow. Yeah, like, you stop the one big thing that yeah. would just destroy everything. And that's cool. good. I mean, like, the, with the Death Star out there, the Rebellion's gone, you know? And so yeah. it's great they did that. But yeah, it's not, you've not made any actual, you haven't hit back yet, you know? Yeah, right? Like, you stop their forward progress, kind of. The only other thing I'll say about that opening crawl is there's always a sort of, like, purple prose propagandaness to the, um, the scrawl. And, like, one thing it says is, you know, the Alliance led by Luke Skywalker. And I'd be yep. like, why would you actually put Luke Skywalker in charge? He's just a good flyboy. And then right? also, once you actually watch what's happening, he's not in any way in charge. So that's just a bit of like, you know, scene setting in the scrawl that makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, they called him Rogue Leader. Yeah. On Hoth. And that's like, 
kind of literally the last time that they see him in this movie. Yeah, until the very end. He goes off and does his own thing. Yeah, he's just like, uh, I'm not going to meet up with anybody, and I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm not (laughs) meeting up with them. I'm just leaving. And also the interesting that once again, um, it takes a while before we have any dialogue. We're three and a half minutes, three and a half minutes into the movie before there's any human dialogue at all. Oh yeah, human dialogue. Yeah. I was like, there's a lot of braying. Dro- dro- droids make noise, yeah. Uh, yeah. Tauntauns make noise. Oh man, there. <laughs> this movie oh. had so many blip, beep, boop <laughs> subtitles. It was yeah. crazy. So like, I might be able to just decode what R two is is beeping. You're getting close. Uh, so let's get into some of the things about Hoth. I I love this battle scene. Like this to me is probably I, I was a real like war kid as it wow, that sounds terrible. But you know what I mean? Like I loved war games. I was very interested in like reading about the histories of battles and I yeah. liked video games that were, you know, moving troops around on a on a battlefield as the as the general. It's why I've never yeah. gotten into Call of Duty games. You know, I don't want to actually just like shoot people. I want to like move the the square that represents fifty thousand troops, you know? Right. And, and so I like a good ground battle scene. And the Hoth battle scene to me is so good. You know, it just, it, it sets up what the different militaries can do. It sets up what the limitations are. It sets up this kind of like asynchronous fighting between the two groups. Um, and there's some like the great scenes, you know, trip. The, there, there are scenes like, you know, the tripping the ad at and stuff like that, where if you watch it again with a critical eye later, this doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. You know, why? Why Now does... that it's face first on the ground, you can shoot it one time in a sweet spot and blows up the whole thing. Suddenly the armor isn't that strong anymore. Yeah, but before the armor, it's just too much for blasters. You know, and I, I well know that it, like with a huge, you know, if you if you kick a battleship and you cut a hole in it and you throw a single personal grenade into a battleship, the whole thing's going to blow up. I mean, that's how it works. Um, Yeah. But all of it is just so, even before we get to the actual battle scene, like, First of all, this has perhaps one of my favorite unintentionally ridiculous but wonderful lines in, I think, all of Star Wars. A death mark's not an easy thing to live with. Um, it's just like, it just sounds so ridiculous when you think about it. But I know what he meant to say. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, the, um, <laughs> like when you were, uh, I was I was thinking of a different quote when, uh, when you were opening the episode, like, oh, it's, you know, it's not that well known. Maybe it's quoted a little bit. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, the, you know, the whole, I'll see you in hell. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, that's a, it's a weird thing to say. Like, hey, your Tauntaun will freeze before you get to the first marker. Well, then I'll see you in hell. Like, I think okay. That is the, that's not hopeful. I think that's the first, like, now, I, I recently worked at a game store where they had a very strict no cursing policy. And I was like, okay, cool. I know what cursing is. And in my mind, things like hell or damn are not curses. But right. I came to realize, no, they're considered non-family, non-family friendly words. And certainly at age five, I, I knew they were like bad words you weren't supposed to say. This was the first time I heard someone say them in a movie. And I remember mm-hmm. I always got this like nervous twinge when I heard Han say that. I'm like, is someone going to stop me from watching this movie? Is this okay? You know, <laughs> that's such an adult <laughs> word, ears. which of course now is like <laughs> ridiculous. Um, yep. Just a couple other kind of great things or ridiculous things in that, in that first scene. Um so Tauntauns are from Hoth, right? Yes. So they are acclimated to this weather. You would think. And maybe like during a snowstorm, they go inside, they go into a cave. They're not very good out at night. Okay. But I'm going to bet that a Tauntaun has a better ability to survive a night outside than a human does. You know, maybe. He's got fur. And like, 
they say they take the point of telling us there's like this infinitesimally small chance, like I think it's one in nine hundred twelve, which is not infinitesimal actually, but a very small chance that he'll survive the night alone. And what do they do? What's the Herculean thing he does? He builds a shelter. Like they put Luke inside the Tauntaun to keep him warm just while they build the shelter, but Han never goes in there. Um, yeah. I have no idea how they survive the night. It doesn't make any sense at all. No, it, it really doesn't. Um, and honestly, I completely like before watching it again this time, I had completely forgotten that Han built the shelter at all. I'm like, how does how do they survive the night? Like, yeah, you forget that part. Do they like spoon inside the Tauntaun? <laughs> Which. Among other things, I think is like, okay, so now you're safe from death and almost certainly going to die from some horrible infection. Like, that's not sanitary. You stuck this guy with open wounds on his face (laughs) inside the body of another creature that you just sliced open. Yeah. Congratulations. There's now a pestilence running through the Hoth rebel base. You're all going to die. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's fine. He uh, he put his space diaper on and and sat in the tube for a little bit. Exactly. A couple other things from it. Everything's um, fine. This is when, and we'll we'll talk about it more at length. But this is when we first start to get like the the complexity of the emotion between Han, Han and Leia. Um, <laughs> and I love it because, and again, as a kid, it all went over my head. But like the idea of a person feeling an emotion that they can't quite name. And that someone else is pointing out to them and thus making them even more defensive and not want to name it. Like, that's that's a very relatable situation. But that's a level of human complexity that almost no other Star, Star Wars movies reach. Um, yeah. Except, I think, Rogue, Rogue One and Last Jedi. Um, it also kind of felt a lot like Han forced it. Yeah. But not not like, not like the way that Anakin forced it on, on Padme. It's more like... He just poked her. He's poking her yeah. the whole time. And, you know, like when he says to Luke, he turns to Luke. He's like, hey, I, I, I must have hit pretty close to the mark to have riled her up so much. Like, you know, based on that, that he probably doesn't believe most of what he's saying to her. Yeah. He's just being an asshole. He's like, I'm the greatest. I'm the <laughs> best. You love me. I'm the best. I'm the best. And I think I, I don't know. The, the kiss was kind of like. It sort of came out of nowhere. Oh, the kiss of between Luke and Luke and Le- Luke and Leia. No, not not Luke and Leia. When uh, when Han was like massaging her hand and like leaning in, leaning in, leaning in, and posing, and posing, and posing. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, Han, you're uh, you're being a little forceful there, champ. Yeah, this is definitely a. In the early '80s, we thought this was sweet and romantic, and now it comes off a little sleazy. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's I, the it's the football star. Yeah, you know, it's the jock. I still think that the... I, I give him more credit. I think that she does have actual feelings for him a lot earlier than we think and that she just doesn't want to admit it. Um, it like it, it does feel a little bit like if the story were told today, it would not be told the same way. But I feel like compared to some of you, compare this to Ghostbusters, for example, like Bill Murray's character makes Han Solo look like the most woke feminist man you'll ever see in your life. Um, <laughs> like that movie, the, ro- the romance is so creepy. Um, that's fair. And I think, I, I, but I, just, I think I like that interplay. I also think I, I, I used to think like, Oh, so Leia wasn't really sure watching it now, watching the last couple of years. I am 100% convinced that Leia is not interested in Luke in the slightest. She wants to yeah, tell no, herself that, was... that she likes a boy named Luke, but she knows that she will walk all over Luke and that's not what she wants. 
Yep. And more yep. importantly, that was entirely just to to throw Han, yeah. <laughs> you know, against the ropes or or to throw him off in some way. Luke is one hundred percent collateral damage in this fight oh, between yeah. the two of what, them, and he loves it. Yeah. He sits back with his arms up. He's just like, "Yeah, old boy, Luke still got it." Yep. And Chewie has so much fun laughing about it, <laughs> <laughs> laughing up fuzzball. It's such a good scene. Um, and yeah, and I. Do you think there's any chance that they knew that Luke and Leia were going to be brother and sister when they wrote that scene? Oh, when this, when the kiss scene was written? Yeah. Uh, probably not. Yeah. I, I, the story I've heard is that when later at the end of this movie, Yoda says there is another, that the writers didn't know what they were talking about yet, which is, <laughs> you know, makes some kind of sense. But yeah, I, I don't think they would have done that than had them had the kiss scene. Um, so yeah, and then we get the battle scene that we talked about. Um, for some reason, I just love the ion cannon. Like, the idea that you can just shoot one or two bolts and take out a, de- a Star Destroyer. I kind of don't understand why every ship doesn't have them. But still, like, it, it's just right? a great little scene of, like, you know, David throwing a rock against Goliath. Well, my my uh, head cannon <laughs> for the ion cannon. <laughs> Sorry. Um my headcanon for that is such is that it requires such a big generator and such a, a large amount of power to fire the ion cannon that it's not something that a ship could have. Maybe? I think that makes sense now. Starting in the later materials, the books and then the TV shows, especially Star Wars Rebels, why wings have them? <laughs> ah. They're just as effective. Oh no! Yeah, it's it's a little dumb, but I, I like your head cannon. Um, the other moment that again, it's sort of a like, and, and here I don't blame the original movie; I blame the prequels. Um, you know, Obi Wan says, "You know, Luke, you must go to Dagobah. You must learn from Yoda, the Jedi Master who taught me." At which point, I really want an edited version of Qui Gon Jinn to show up as a Force ghost and be like, "The fuck? <laughs> what do you mean?" Like. <laughs> I made you a pet. I took you out of being a Padawan, jerkface. I died right? for you. I died for you. I died because you were too slow getting through that damn hallway. Yep. Yep. So he should have uh, should have done some force speed mm-hmm. that they did at the beginning of the of the movie. Yeah. Because remember they went zipping off down the hallway away from the droids. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Yeah. A couple other little things from Hoth. Um, this is the first time we get introduced to the Super Star Destroyer. And that shot of how it comes into place, where at first all you see is these Star Destroyers, which we know are huge. And then we just start seeing the shadow of the Super Star Destroyer being cast over them. That is such yeah. a brilliant shot. Like That, to me, is one of the things I will always remember. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the Empire likes their big and imposing ships. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, nothing beats small and agile. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> and then poor Admiral Ozzel has to die. Um, eh, no one cares. Yeah. I I just like um, Captain Piet getting promoted and looking so scared when he does. Yep. And just that, You're like, now in charge. It's a tiny thing, but Admiral Ozzel fa- falls. He's now in charge. And then he just makes this tiny little head gesture of, you know, go take away the body. And it's just so well done. Yep. Like, dispose of this. Um, uh, I'm Admiral now. Yeah, yay, promotions. Yeah. He he somehow survives the movie. He's very lucky in that regard. Um, yeah, what didn't he say that he was going to go apologize to Vader? No, like that's the... Um, responsibility? 
Or is that somebody else? That's a, it's a specific, it's one of the specific smaller Star Destroyers that has the, um, the tractor beam that lost the Millennium Falcon later. Okay. Because they just, all of these Empire adults look alike. Yeah. <laughs> they got the same goofy hat on. <laughs> they all look white and, you know, generally dark haired and old. Yeah. <laughs> old. Especially the old part. Any other last things about Hoth before we move on? Uh, no, not really. I feel like Hoth was a super short part of the movie, but, you know, it's it's it was a super short part, but it's also, like, one of the most widely known sections of Star Wars, you know? Like, it... It, it was a, a tiny part of the beginning of this movie that, like you really shouldn't even care about or remember, but it is, it's so widely, like it's, it's so much, so deep buried in the consciousness of, oh, yeah. of star Wars, like shared consciousness that they referenced it in the last Jedi with the, the salt planet mm-hmm. and it, <laughs> where it's like, Oh yeah, it looks like Hoth. No, no, this is salt. This is an interesting thing. I think about the the structure of the first three movies, because all of them have this part that, that feels like a prelude, like Tatooine in the first movie, Hoth in Empire, and then Return of the Jedi back to Tatooine, but the whole scene with Jabba. Like in, in, in all three movies, that feels to me like it's just prelude, and like the movie really begins once we get off one of those three planets. In reality, yeah. though, I think in each case, that scene is like 30 to 45 minutes. I mean... Yeah, that, that first scene, or that first, you know, sequence, if you want to call it that, the first planet is uh, is effectively the first act of a four act movie. Yeah, this it feels like this uh, this original trilogy is is closer to a a three act overarching big thing made up of four act smaller things. Yeah. And in each one, I think especially in this one, that that first set of scenes really sets the tone and and tells us all the things that we need to, to know for the rest of the movie. We know yeah. that the rebels are in real trouble and are on the run. We know that Han and Leia have this tension between them and are going to spend time alone on the run and, and figuring their own stuff out. We know that Luke is going to be in this dilemma of like, do I pursue being a Jedi or do I help my friends? And, and where do my loyalties lie there? We know that Vader is very frustrated and is focused on searching out Luke and is killing people of his own kind along the way to like get there. Um, you know, I, so I feel like it, it, it's, you're right, part of me is like, why do we keep thinking about it? But it's, I think it's a, it's, it's a lot longer than we give it credit for, but it just sets up everything. You know, this, this is the, um, the, that kind of like the eighth or ninth, ninth episode of a 10 episode run season. This is putting all the chess pieces on the board, you know, and then the rest of the game, the rest of the movie, we're going to play with them, but there's no real more pieces that are added. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Luke and his arc. What's your kind of overall take on, on what happens with Luke in this movie? I've already expressed my frustration mm. uh, when he goes to Dagobah because <laughs> he just does not tell anybody. Yeah. Like, hey, by the way, don't wait up <laughs> at the rendezvous point. I'm going to be going to Dagobah because I heard a space ghost tell me about it. Uh, like, I saw Ben. Like, okay, yeah, sure. You, maybe you... Maybe you got some brain freeze going on. Yeah. You need to go back to the to the medic bot. I, I think, though, that part of the point of it is, like, the whole movie is establishing that he is 
not ready to be a Jedi yet, in part because he has the same problems that his father does. And again, not even thinking about the prequels, just going on what the movies told us, that he mm-hmm. was impulsive, that he was rash, that he let his emotions color him, and that he would take the easy path. He would take the immediate path and not be willing to sacrifice. Um, which I say the prequels, it's one of the few things they do well is to establish all of that about Anakin. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, it would have been so much smarter for him to, to, to tell them what was going on. And if nothing else, to be, you know, to maybe listen that Yoda and Obi-Wan know what's going on as well. Um, you know, and... But it, but it fits his character. And I think you need it yeah. because, as I'm going to get to with Vader... It, it makes Vader much more relatable, you know, especially once we learn that Anakin was Vader. But even before that, when all we know is that Anakin, that Vader was another Jedi who was seduced by the dark side. I feel like what this movie is really setting up is that Luke is coming really close to being seduced by the dark side. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, he asks, he asks Yoda, is the dark side stronger? And Yoda's like, no, 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 no. It's quicker. It's, you know, it's easier. It's seductive. But... It's not a strong mm-hmm. and you'll know the difference when you're calm. And I was like, Oh shit, man. Yoda's got some, Yoda's still got some hangups. Yeah. <laughs> like Yoda may have gone a little bit crazy on this planet. Like if we're, <laughs> if we're going old, you know, prequel trilogy Yoda to, to Dagobah Yoda, he's, he's gone off his rocker a little bit, but, um, he he's got some hangups about what happened with uh, with Anakin and you know the whole fall of the republic and you can see that coming through that he's you know he's trying to play it off like oh, I'm just a kooky old guy and then he starts talking to Obi-Wan and it's like this kid's not ready dude so like, that, I can't you may I can't actually teach him. explain the, the one biggest thing that I was sad about coming out of this movie and and I'm still sad about it but I I I think you've given a better explanation, which is we're introduced to a side of Yoda here. Like you said, kooky. He's, he's kind of the, um, he's not an alcoholic. He's not drinking by any means, but it kind of reminds me of the drunken master. You know, he's, yeah. he's very playful. I mean, he's almost like, um, the, the, uh, you know what I mean? Like the, 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 the trope of the trickster God. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a thing that appears in many different mythologies of, uh, you know, it's coyote, it's Loki, not the Marvel version, but the, the, the more traditional Norse version or, um, uh, Hermes sometimes is this or are other God figures who, you know, they, they teach people by playing tricks on them, by being ridiculous and a clown figure so that no one takes them seriously and no one realizes what they're teaching. And that's right. 100% Yoda, you know, acting like, Oh, I'm just this ridiculous bumpkin you know <clears throat> i just want to go have good food good food and <laughs> it's a fantastic teaching technique and i was watching it realizing why do we never see this side of yoda ever again in any of the movies and what you're saying i think would help explain it that maybe it's just that he you know when he's at the jedi temple when he's on coruscant he does still have to be the dignified master and it's only here that you know he's been talking to trees and alligators for the last 20 years that maybe there's nothing else he can do. Um, but I definitely like, this is my favorite Yoda and I'm sad we don't see more of it. Cause it is such a great way to teach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I, I keep going back to like, we need to remake the prequels and, and I keep holding myself back from that. Like, you know, that whole movie medics thing, <laughs> but like Yoda as 
a like a Professor Trelawney type yes, of, of character right? would be so much better in the Jedi Temple. Like he could have still been this kooky zany guy that they they really just kind of keep around because he's in a he's occasionally a crazy good oracle. Or even I mean from the books, he could have been the, the Dumbledore figure as from the books, you know. And again, like yeah, we're quoting work by um, an author who I think we have very strong feelings of being problematic about, but it doesn't change the fact that those ideas are great motifs to draw from. In the books, yeah, yeah. especially the earlier books, Dumbledore is that he's a kook. And most of the rest of the school and most of the board of governors don't really understand, except he's got this, this wisdom and this brilliance that comes through in his kookiness. And that's exactly yes. what Yoda could be. Yoda could have been that. Like, what if Yoda wasn't on the Jedi Council, but they were all sort of like, eh, we can't really decide without asking Yoda, but Yoda might, like, stick a banana in our ear? I don't know what to do about this, you know? <laughs> I mean, he didn't say here at all that he, um, that he was on the council. You know, yeah. he said for 800 years, I've trained Jedi like he he could just be the younglings trainer, yeah. you know, and that's how you get through to, to little kids. You you entertain them. You keep them engaged by entertaining them. Yeah. And that's why he's so kooky and zany and perfect for it. Come on. Yeah. Oh, that would be so good. Um, but yeah, but I like that, that helps to explain it a little more. Um, yeah. And, and this is where so much of my, uh, and this is the thing I, I probably love most about the movie. I, I've talked at other times about how the Jedi philosophy was a big part of my like moral and ethical upbringing. And it's what Yoda teaches, you know? And it's this idea of, I'm gonna, you, 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 you talked about part of it, but I want to quote the whole line. Anger, fear, aggression. Oh, beware of the dark side. Anger, fear, aggression. The dark side of the force are they. Easily they flow, quick to join you in a fight. If once you start down the dark path, Forever will it dominate your destiny, consume you at will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice. Um, yep. Which, first of all, it's brilliant. He doesn't say Vader, and he doesn't say Anakin. He just says Obi-Wan's apprentice. But just, I mean, that line is poetry. It's be- it rolls off the tongue so well. But it's also just such a great philosophy of, you know, if you hate the thing that is evil, like, it's, hating it is good, and you need to hate it, but it's easy to get consumed by that, you know? And how much is that... That's the Punisher story. That's the Phantasm of Batman and the Phantasm. That's how many of our superhero stories are about a good person who hates something so much and gets so wrapped up in that anger that they become the villain. Yep. Oh, man. And the 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 thing that like that really got to me in this uh in this rewatch um is Yoda telling like Yoda telling Luke when Luke just kind of happens upon the 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 dark tunnel or whatever you want to call it, like the old temple that was just full of dark side energy. Mm-hmm. He goes, he goes like he goes walking into it. Yoda's like, you're not going to need your weapons. You know, he said, what's in there? He said, only what you bring with you. Yeah. And he says, you're not going to need your weapons. And then Luke just looks at him like whatever and puts on his weapon belt. And. I thought that that was so telling that he he's not he's not ready to just trust in the wisdom of Yoda. He's not ready to to put it all down and trust in the force. He's not ready really to trust himself. He's like, you know, these weapons, I I need them everywhere I go, especially here because this place is full of monsters. Yeah. You know who he reminds me of a lot? Doctor Doctor Stephen Strange. Dr. Stephen Strange. You know, it's that same idea of, like, he goes to learn, but he can't let go. He can't just trust the system. You know, he 
And yeah. and finally, Stephen Strange gets that moment where he's just like, "Teach me," you know. He finally gets it, and Luke never gets to that moment in this, you know, not until the not in this movie, not until the end, yeah, um, not until he loses a hand. Yeah. Oh my God! Everybody loses a hand in this movie. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean the the freaking Yeti lost yeah. a hand. <laughs> the Wampa, whatever the hell thing's called. Yeah, the Wampa. Sorry. Yeah. Um. No, it's a Yeti. That's that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it it's such an interesting story, and I think it's. I think I think this movie really shows well the idea of trust, you know. And one of my favorite lines is when Luke doesn't believe that, um, you know, Yoda says lift the the X wing out of the swamp, and he says you ask the impossible, and then Yoda does it, and then in this brilliant line, Luke says I can't believe it, and Yoda just says that is why you fail, you know. And it's that just that is it, why you fail. It's and it's, I mean, that's so relatable. Like, how many how many times have I realized there was something in my life that I probably could have done if I hadn't convinced myself that I couldn't? You know, that, like, that imposter syndrome, that self-doubt, it always hits you. It, it will, saying something's impossible will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yep. Man, the, the inside of my wedding ring says, do or do not, there is no try. Oh, I love that. That's really nice. Yep. Yep. It, it's one of the lines in which I completely disagree because I don't think there's something really important about doing your best and trying, but I also know yeah. what you mean. It's one of those lines where, like, <laughs> literally it's kind of not what I agree with, but the the the, met, the metaphor of it makes perfect sense. Well, I, in the moment is where it, it really fits more yeah. for that, like, for the philosophy within Star Wars. It's like, you either lift the X-Wing or you don't. Right. And your commitment to using the force, it's basically like um, like the Green Lantern, mm. where it's it's based on will. Like, you have to will it to be. You have to know you're going to do it, and then, boom, it's done. Yeah. Otherwise, you fail. I mean, it's also, very, to me, what it also reminds me of is the Matrix. You know, it's the there is no spoon. You, just, you yeah. have to understand that it's not about... It's not about you. Right. It's not <laughs> about, like, is the force strong enough to move this because it's so heavy? It's that once you really understand the force... The weight of it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, it's, it's irrelevant. Um, right. And and yeah, so that that's all just so good. Um, and I feel like Luke still never really gets that. Yeah. Like even in the in the post schools, he he never really gets that until like in the Last Jedi when he you know makes a phone call. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and he hits that remote fight. Um. And that's that's really when he seems to become more in tune with the force. But like in all the flashbacks and everything, he still just doesn't he doesn't trust in anything around him. You know, I really hope of all of the shows that I want them to give us at some point, And you'd have to do a lot of makeup to make Mark Hamill look young enough to do this. And I don't want anyone but Hamill to do it. I want to watch the formation of Kylo Ren. You know, I want just give us one season. Don't make it any longer than that. Ten episodes. But of what happened at that Jedi temple, you know, where he was teaching them. And especially because I think of it now, because I want to know, did he get it by then? You know, what was he teaching them in terms of understanding the force? Because we never get to really hear. We leave him just after he's fully become a Jedi and defeated the Emperor and then pick up with him 30 years later when everything's falling apart. And I just would yeah. it'd be a great way to see that that in the middle. Um, yeah, it would be nice to uh, to see how he got it so damn wrong. Yeah, because like based on the Last Jedi, like this is a guy that 
the last time we saw him in uh, in Return of the Jedi, like destroyed the Sith by understanding that love is the way mm-hmm. to to bring somebody around and and to you know nobody is without hope. It's like, right. especially somebody like Lord Vader, nobody is without hope and can be brought back through love. Why would he do the things that, no, that we're not talking about last Jedi. <laughs> we're not talking about last Jedi. Well, but that's the thing is like, that's in the, in, in return, that's the thing he knows that Yoda and Obi-Wan never figured out. Obi-Wan says Vader can't be saved. Yoda says it will forever dominate your destiny. You know, they both believe once you go to the dark side, you're never coming back. Um, and, and I love that Luke though, is that, that one who pulls him out of it. But, but even going before that, so let's talk more about what, what happens to Luke and y- Luke and Yoda. Um, one just kind of quick aside as a kid, I watched a lot of very scary things. I watched jaws as a kid. Um, uh, and it freaked me out. I didn't go in the water for a little while afterwards. Um, I watched Friday the 13th. I watched the, the nightmare on Elm street movies. There is nothing that terrified me more out of all those things I watched as a kid than Yoda saying, like Luke saying, I'm not afraid. And Yoda just saying, you, you will, will be. be, you will be. I, I don't know what it was, that line. But like To the point where like as a little kid, I couldn't remember if Yoda was the villain or not because that line was so terrifying. <laughs> he uh, He was certainly on a planet of... Should have been a villain. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. Like he got introduced on the scariest, spookiest looking place where you're just like, you know, I've watched a movie before. I've seen things. I know tropes. Mm-hmm. This guy is going to turn out to be a villain. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anything else about Luke and Yoda before we move on to the second half of Luke's journey? Um. I guess just the, the decision um, to leave. I, I get the sense you have some strong thoughts on that. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's more and more clear that Luke does not get it, that he, he wasn't ready. He didn't understand, you know, he, he doesn't trust in anybody. You know, I say that he doesn't trust in himself, but it's like, he doesn't trust anybody. And he's like, I got to do this myself, but then he still doesn't trust in himself when he goes to actually do it. Yeah. And it's, it's really frustrating. Like, Luke was whiny in the last movie, and then in this movie, he's got some sort of arrogance that I don't know where it came from, and I damn sure don't know how he feels like he earned that arrogance. Like, okay, cool, you trusted in the Force one time and destroyed the Death Star, and you never again... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Justin in the force and like decided to feel your way through everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely you're killing me small. You know? It's that, it's that, um, and it makes sense. You know, everyone else did grow up in the Jedi temple. I think for Obi-Wan and Yoda, one of the things they really wrestle with is this isn't a youngling. He's never been through any of the stuff. Like they both remember that Anakin started at age like nine and they feel like that was too old. And now here's this yeah. like surly 17 year old who's coming along. Um, <laughs> way too old. Yeah, way too old to begin the training. Um, and I, I will say here's also where the even though they did it badly, what the prequels established really hits me hard because having seen the prequels and how painful that was, 
um, like for for Yoda and for Obi Wan, hearing them talk about like the regret they have for what happened to Anakin and not wanting to make that mistake, it it, it hit me a lot harder. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the things that uh, that the prequels have going for them, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you they they at least got that much. You you still you feel that regret. Um, they may not have necessarily lined up everything with obi-wan's backstory and who the hell's qui-gon he doesn't matter anymore apparently (laughs) but um there's at least the you know there was the fall yeah and there was the you know you had the sense of pride from the jedi from the the jedi order obi-wan yoda etc everybody who died like you've got all of them feeling like they're on top and then they're not and then the one thing that they thought that they had going for them was being able to teach this guy who was the chosen one and he's gone too. And it's the worst thing. And actually here's 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 the thing that I'm wondering about at the very end of that scene, like in one of, I think almost the most heartless things, but now that I know the whole history of the Jedi, it makes sense and shows me how tragic it is. You know, Luke says, but my friends might die. Should I let them die? And Yoda just flat out says, if you honor what they fight for, yes. Um, and it feels so heartless, but I feel like part of what this is, it's about they have seen what happened because Anakin had human emotions and human connections. And they're still not able to understand that the problem was expecting people to not to live without attachment. And yeah. so I, I think you're right. The prequels even really helped set this up of the reason why they're so angry at Luke leaving is because they want, they don't want him to go down Anakin's route. They want him to go into a place of you are connected to the force and you're connected to the rebellion and you're connected to humanity and, and people enemy. I mean, sentience, but you're not connected to any individual beings. Um, and, and it's set up is that that's Luke's failure. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of the reason why, He's in a bad spot now. Because yeah. he went to face Vader before he was ready. And I think... So here's the question. Part of it, I think... I think what they're thinking is that he's not ready because he's not a good enough fighter. He's not ready because he can't resist the dark side yet. And they think he's not ready because... He, they think he's not ready to know the truth. Do you think they should have told him the truth? Um... Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that they should have told him the truth very early on. Um, or, you know, I, I'm not even sure that Obi-Wan should have told him. I think I know that Yoda should have told him like I, that. I can I can fully stand behind is that, you know, Obi-Wan telling telling Luke Obi-Wan lied to you or Obi-Wan withheld the truth from you. However, he wants to spin it. Um, telling Luke that Vader's his dad and like you have the potential for such greatness, but also for such hate and such power. Like that's in your bloodline and you see what he's become. Yeah. This is why you need to, you know, be careful of the seduction of the dark side. You know, it, it probably maybe could have, you know, it could have set an example. It could have established an example because it's not good just to teach through lecture. Sometimes you have to show like some hands-on examples, some real world examples of 
of why a, a certain thing is away, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that could have been a very, uh, a very good teaching tool to be like, look, dude, like this is, I, I know what I'm talking about. I've seen it. You've seen yeah. it. It's right there. Especially because, granted, this is only because we know it because of the prequels, but even from these movies, they've established that mostly it's Obi-Wan's fault. Like, in the original trilogy, yeah. it's not Yoda's fault. In the prequels, it's a little bit his fault, but, but Yoda's going to keep warning against it, saying, like, I don't want them to train you. I think this is dangerous. But given all that, even if we don't know the prequels, we know that Obi-Wan has all the guilt about it. I, I can understand Obi-Wan thinking he's protecting Luke, but in many cases also he's protecting himself, you know, because... A, just the colossal guilt that he feels, but also maybe he thinks if I tell Luke, Luke will abandon me and then he won't learn what I can teach him. So he can kind of justify it to himself, but it's somewhat a defensive thing. But if that's the case, it should be easy for Yoda to say, look, Obi-Wan is in this very difficult situation. This is why he can't say this, but I need to tell you. Um, Of course, they don't do it because, you know, that wouldn't make it as good a movie. (laughs) You don't get the great (laughs) punch of the reveal. But yeah, I feel like they should have told him. Um, yeah. I, I also like that, and as we'll get now into the scene with Vader himself, um, they're kind of wrong. You know, like Luke is defeated by Vader, but is still able to resist turning to the dark side. Um, what, what's your kind of take on that? Because it's a very confusing scene in terms of like what's going on, and, and we'll get more into Vader's motivations in a second. But just from Luke's point of view, do you think he kind of wins that in that regard and that he doesn't turn to the dark side? No. Um, honestly, I think that the, the whole, like losing his hand situation, um, might push him more toward darkness Mm. just because he's so impulsive already. And when, when he's confronted with, you know, this is your, this is your option that I uh, am giving to you. I want to offer you this, you know, you've been told the dark side is bad, but come join me and you'll see how great it is. His, his initial reaction to that is to lash out. Yeah. And that's kind of his initial reaction to most things that go against what he wants. Like when he was a whiny little kid in the first movie, you know, it was, I want to go to the power converters. Like power converters. You know, he lashes out with, right. He lashes out with words, but here, like, oh, I've got a lightsaber, so I'm going to lash out with that. He's impulsive, and he he's he wants what he wants right now, and he's impatient, and, like, all of the things that Yoda says about him, they're absolutely true, and all of that is leading him down the dark path, leading him to the dark side. I, I really only think that it's um, a matter of plot that, that keeps him away from the dark side, um... Just because, like, I think that now he's got the seeds planted of, well, I'm not strong enough like this. I, you know, I I learned a lot from Yoda, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he didn't actually learn shit from Yoda, basically. <laughs> he did some PT with Yoda and then got a, a lecture. Um, <laughs> I, I think he learns more than that. I feel like he does learn enough to understand that what what vader is offering him is he has to reject it in a way that i'm not sure he would have without without having talked to yoda and ben for that long maybe although it's also one of the frustrations of the movie how long do you think he's training on dagobah yeah i don't know because i don't know how how long are are the the crew tortured for yeah it feels to me like it's 
it should be a month at least, you know, like, right. Especially since we're basically supposed to think like he learns what younglings learn in like 15 years. Um, right. Right. And, and, and like at the end of the, or like halfway through the montage, he's doing one handed handstands and, you know, lifting up the rocks and stacking them. Yeah. Like, like that should be, that's some pretty advanced stuff from where he, on Dagobah. but yeah, yeah. That's some pretty advanced stuff from where he started in the movie where he was like, hanging upside down and could barely get his lightsaber out of the snow. But the way the plot is set up, we basically think like it's three or four days because it's only the time that it takes. Like, you know, how long is the millennium Falcon being chased by the death, by the star destroyers? How long is it waiting in that asteroid slash space worm? How long is it getting to Bespin? And then how long are they on Bespin? You know, especially because, he leaves about the point that they get to Bespin. Um, so yeah, it, it's it, the timing of it does not make any sense. And that's, that's yeah. fine. Uh, we can overlook that. <laughs> Time works differently on Dagobah. So let's talk about my favorite character in this movie. Uh, Darth Vader. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say Lando. Oh no, I mean, Lando's fantastic. That's definitely true. We'll, we'll get to him <laughs> in a second. Um, and he's the only one where I, I generally don't like seeing the same character played by someone different. And I, I think Ewan McGregor did very good at um, Obi-Wan. I think the the voice actor in the uh, show Clone Wars did even better. I think what Daniel Glover did with Obi-Wan, with uh, Lando in the Solo is the only good thing about that movie. And he's maybe even better than uh, Billy Dee Williams, which is amazing to, oh, to say. Yeah, man. Um, Donald Glover had my heart in that movie. Uh, and Billy Williams in this is so good. But but no, no. Back to Vader. Back to Vader. Um, back to Vader. What, what, I'll kind of give you my whole theory on Vader, but what, what's your kind of take on, on Vader in this movie? No, no, no. You go ahead. You go ahead. I feel like I've said a lot about Vader. Like, it's, you know, he's got so much more to do. Yeah. So I feel like in many ways, in a very anti-hero, if not, you know, straight-up villain way, not a hero at all, a villain way, but Vader is one of the main protagonists of this movie. Because, and I think this is subtle, but the more I watch it, the more I'm convinced of this, especially, and I'll get to this, if you watch the original version, um, which is because of one particular scene. And my idea is that I feel like for most of this movie, Vader knows that Luke is his son. And Vader is looking for him because I feel like already Vader is starting to think maybe he doesn't want to serve the Emperor anymore. And, and I'll, I'll explain why I'm get all, getting all of this. And because when I used to watch as a kid, Vader just saying all of a sudden, you and I can overthrow the emperor and rule the galaxy as father and son made no sense to me whatsoever. I didn't. I was like, where did that come from? But the more I watch it, the more I'm realizing like he's being very cagey. He doesn't really explain anything, but he very clearly wants to find Luke. So the scene that I'm talking about here is the scene where uh, Vader talks to the emperor about uh, Luke Skywalker and um, the original version of this was shot um, where they hadn't cast Ian McDermott as the Emperor yet for Jedi so it's using a different actor and then because Lucas likes to go back and fix things um, fix with big quotation marks um, <laughs> they went back and reshot it with Ian, McDerm- Ian McDermott and they changed some fundamental lines and um, Jeff and I actually just watched both of those scenes again to get this fresh in our memory the, th- the big change to me is in, the, in this version, in the new version, the Emperor tells Vader that, that the person who blew up the Death Star 
is the son of Anakin Skywalker. And Vader is clearly very surprised. He didn't know that happened. Yeah, he said, how's that possible? Right. In the original, that's not the case. And then he case. says, search your feelings, you'll know it to be true. In the original, they're both just talking about Luke Skywalker, and they both clearly already know who he is. And the reason why yeah. I think that matters is because what happens next? The Emperor wants to kill Luke, and Vader talks him out of it. Vader says, what if he can be turned? And up till now, like, Vader hasn't been, like, rushing to go tell the Emperor what's going on. And when you watch all that and watch Vader's conduct and watch how much Vader's reaching out to him, I think, that at least in the original telling, and I think they didn't mean to change this, they just were dumb about the lines, I think part of the idea here is that all along, Vader has wanted to turn Luke. He's never been planning to, to give Luke over to the Emperor. Um, especially because in Jedi, it seems like that's the same kind of dynamic. Like, we see there Vader fighting against the Emperor's control, and part of him doesn't want to do this. Um, so, so anyway, that, that's my theory. And this is one that Paul helped convince me of. And I, he could go much deeper into the details in. But I feel like every time I watch this, what I see is Vader struggling. And Vader, you know, not having very healthy workplace ideas about what to do with frustration. Um, you know, <laughs> killing subordinates. Um, but, you know, he's so clear. Like, he doesn't want people harmed. He doesn't want Luke killed. He doesn't want any of these things. And... Especially with the stuff all that we know that that was in Lucas's head, even if it hadn't been set on screen yet, about like you know that there can be only two: the 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 leader and the apprentice, the apprentice and the and the master. Um, my take is that that Vader has all along been wanting to save Luke, turn him to the dark side, and then the two of them take on the Emperor together. And and that a lot of this movie is about him coming to that and wrestling with that and wrestling with his feelings about the Emperor. Yeah. And, you know, that, that scene that we're talking about, it, it's not, I don't know, the, the addition of those extra lines, because I feel like that's really all that changed is like the actor got swapped out, but the most of the lines are still the same, except for the addition of this is the, the offspring. Like, I have no doubt that this is the offspring of Anakin. And Vader's like, how could that be? Well, it's not just that. It's, it's the way it's, the Emperor first talks about him as, the rebel pilot who destroyed the Death Star and then says, yeah. I think it's the son of, of Anakin. In the original, they just start talking about the person named Luke Skywalker. And, yeah. And so to me that... And he calls him the son of Skywalker. Exactly. Must not become a Jedi. Yeah. And they, that happens in both the old and new version. Yep, definitely. It's just... I don't know. It's... It feels like... It feels like maybe it's a little bit pandery mm. in the new version. Yeah. Like we as the audience are, we're smart enough to, to put that together maybe yeah. or no. Well, but do you see, do you think there's a difference there of that? It, in, oh, in, no. in the second one that, that Vader is surprised where in the first one, there's no indication that Vader doesn't already know this. Well, Hmm. I think in the original Vader, like Vader acted like he already knew. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the question at this point of, did we as the audience know that Vader and Anakin are the same person? I don't think we do. I think that's the point. Damn. So by changing it, by, by updating it in quotes, uh, Lucas 
basically undercut that whole reveal in the new version. Well, I think because he knew that by the time people were watching the new version, they probably would know already. Doesn't matter. I mean, it's still bad. Yeah, I'm not saying it's good in any way. Like, (laughs) that's my whole point. I feel like it totally undercuts the power of that scene. I feel like part of the real power to me of that scene is that the emperor is a little worried because the emperor is, he's wondering if Anakin is still in there anymore, you know, and then if Anakin is wanting to go save, you know, Anakin rescuing his wife and his kids was what started this whole thing. And there's a great tension there. If Anakin knows and the emperor is like, um, let's just go kill this guy instead. Maybe you should stop like this whole thing you're on. Um, okay. Try to turn him. Let's see how that goes. Like, and all that's lost in this new version. Yeah. Uh, man. Anyway, that, that's my take on Yoda's, uh, Vader's arc. What, what, what's, how, what's your take on it all? I mean, that's, that's a little bit frustrating that all that got thrown away. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like it all just kind of got pissed away. Damn. Um, as far as, as Vader's arc, uh, you know, it's knowing that there's always two and, you know, it's always a, a master and apprentice um, and that they, you know, the, the master should always be watching for the apprentice to usurp him. And especially if the the apprentice gains an apprentice, mm-hmm. like that's when you got to be super careful. Or if they're talking about gaining an apprentice, like, hey, yeah, we can turn this guy. Like, oh, yeah, can we? Who's going to turn him? Who's who's he replacing? Right. Like, that's my question. So the, you know, having having Palpatine be uncertain of Vader's motivations uh, and and kind of being on edge about it. I would like that more. Yeah, because that that puts that power dynamic back in into uh, into play in a way that that the tracks with everything that we've learned. Right. Well, especially because, and again, this is what we, this, this is what we know of Sith philosophy. The emperor knows that, okay, if maybe Vader's slipping a little bit, you know, he's, he's lashing out at his subordinates. He's not getting the job done. He's Anakin is sort of poking his head back up. Sure. Yep. Let's egg on a confrontation between Anakin and Luke. And if Vader kills him, great. Vader's back. If Luke kills Anakin, if Luke kills Vader. Cool. Now I have a better apprentice in Luke instead of Vader, you know, and in Jedi, that's exactly right. what we see. He wants them to fight to the death because he thinks whoever wins will be my apprentice, will be my, my new, you know, servant. Yep. Yep. Um, other things uh, about Vader, it's kind of messed up that uh, that he decided, like, let's do this new or let's do this thing that has never been performed on an organic life form. Uh, in order to transport them across, like as a prisoner, to transport them across the the galaxy, uh, and let's test it on his friend. Yeah. <laughs> well, like that's messed up. You know, I mean, I think if there's one thing that the Jedi and the Sith share, it's they have almost no respect for life that isn't Force users. Like, yeah. and for the Jedi, it's we have to respect all life, but not to care about individuals. For the Sith, it's like you know, screw them, just they get under your boot. But neither one of them really understands the concept of collateral damage very much. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, do no harm. Your will be done. Mm-hmm. And then the Sith is just like, your will be done. Yeah. 
pretty much. The Jedi have a very screwed up understanding of what do no harm does, because they basically mean do no harm on a planetary scale. Like, they're a very utilitarian kind of like, you know, if 10 people are mildly sick, but they might get 200 more sick, you kill those 10 to preserve the 200. Um, Yeah, you kill all the younglings. (laughs) Yeah, that's the Jedi too, you know. Whereas the Sith, it's just like, who gets in my way? Um, Right. A couple of things about Vader. Um, In that fight that they have, one thing I... And this, again, to me, is one more piece of big evidence here. Vader is so proud of Luke during that fight. Like, he scolds him, but, like, you know, that moment where Luke jumps out of it... uh, it, At first, he's... When Luke falls into the carbonite pit and Vader says, all too easy, he sounds disappointed. And then he sees him jump out. Impressive. Most impressive. Like, to me, this is kind of like the um, the scene I've seen in some movies where, like, a dad has been beating up on his son too much and the son finally fights back. And the dad's nervous, but also kind of like, yeah, I taught my kid to stand up, you know? Good for him. Oh, shit, I got to duck yeah. that punch. But, um, like, yeah. <laughs> especially because it's not, yep. I mean... Vader toys with him, but Luke gets in some good shots. You know, Luke hits his arm. Luke Luke knocks Vader back a couple times. Um, and I think I think Vader's really proud of that in this way that's just a very, like, screwed-up father-and-son dynamic. Yeah. Hmm. It's... I just... I feel like the whole time he was toying with him. Uh-huh. Like, he, it was cat and mouse, and Luke thought that... Like, Luke's playing checkers, and... Vader's over here, like three-dimensional chess. Yeah. I, I think that's a part of it, but I also think that Vader starts out underestimating Luke and then is, is happy to see that he's wrong. Yeah. He's still, like, he's still leagues ahead of him as far as force mastery. Right. But, um, you know, it's it, he does have that bit of pride where, like, yeah, you're you're coming along. You're, you're you only started this, learning you know? force things yesterday. I also... I might have to take my arm from behind my back. I love that line. Um, we can end this conflict and bring order to the galaxy. Um, I mean, this is the seduction of fascism. You know, this is the... We will make the trains run on time. And I think it's one of the things that, um, honestly, the show Mandalorian really gets into so well. But that's been a kind of theme throughout all these movies. And that is certainly a theme, a theme in, the, in the world today and in history of when there's situations of great disorder and great chaos and no one quite knows what's going on, like a strong leader who will just make the trains run on time and tell everybody what to do and where to go and who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. That's very appealing. And and I can understand why Vader thinks that's the right way to go. I mean, I just remember the client in the Mandalorian going, look around you. And I'm like, Oh, he's right. You know, you see why the first order rose. You see why there were people who, um, supported the the empire you know when it first got started mm. um man anything else about uh vader and his arc um i i found it is uh captain nita is the second person he killed and so that's why um admiral piet survives because it's, it's just the commander of the particular death star who uh gets started story thank you who uh uh loses the loses the the falcon in the tractor beam um okay you know, and I, I think that honestly, one of the most terrifying moments is there's no thing of like, you know, when the person doesn't lash out, when they just get quiet, that's even scarier. And just yeah. the pure menace <laughs> of Vader watching them go away, watching them jump to light speed, Piet looking so terrified, everyone on the bridge crew looking terrified, and Vader just like takes a deep breath 
and just walks away. <laughs> and it's just like, you can see how frustrated and annoyed he is. And you can see how everyone there is like, okay, there's another shoe and it's going to kill me when it falls. When will another shoe right. drop? Giant shoe <laughs> that's going to murder me on, on drop. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the pee spot on their pants is growing. Yes, very true. <laughs> um, any more on Vader or should we move to a Han and Leia? Let's let's move to that uh, forced relationship. Yeah, so you're 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 not a true romantic. It sounds like you you didn't love that that <laughs> dynamic. Well, you know, like we said earlier, it's a, it's a it's a dynamic that was okay in the '80s and is not so okay these days because uh, you know repeatedly she says no and he's still just like I'm the best. You love me you love me because I said so. And she's like, shut up. You're an idiot. <laughs> See, and I guess maybe here I'm reading it differently. And, and this may well be because I've been raised to, to think that this is romantic and it may, it, any of my fans who want to write in, if you're on Jeff's side, please do. But especially any of the women who are like, Matthew, you entitled jerk. You don't understand. Um, please let me know. <laughs> Cause maybe I'm holding on to it a little much. It, it feels like the difference to me is that like, Anakin is basically just trying to guilt Padme into having feelings for him. Um, right. Often it's, you know, uh, Bill Murray's character in Ghostbusters is basically guilting, you know, is stalking Sigourney Weaver to make her fall for him. I think that Han is right that Leia already has these feelings for him. She's just hiding them. And I think, like, you know, in the real world, you need to be respectful of a person and believe what they say even if you think they're having an internal struggle about it, you know, I, I totally agree with you there. I think there's something very yeah. romantic about the idea though, of the person who sees the truth that you don't want to acknowledge and, and pushes you to look at that. And you're right. It's done in a way that's very eighties and is not okay today by any means. But I, I, I find, I, I guess that's why I find the romance of it. And it's why, and I'm curious what you think of it. I love that last line so much because it's, you know, she says, I love you. And he says, I know. To me, it says two things. One is that it's the him naming, like, yes, I've known this all along. But it's not be, but it's not just cockiness, because part of what he's saying is, like, this is how well I know you. This is how well I pay attention to you. This is how much I love you, is that I, I see this in you. But the other thing is, and, I, and granted, we only really get this from the prequels and from, I uh, can't believe it, I'm saying this solo, but I think it's strongly implied, is that he's had a pretty screwed up life up to this point. And... He's probably heard a lot of people tell him things that he doesn't believe. And in this moment, like, of course you're going to, like, the person's about to maybe die. They they want you to say I love you throughout the whole movie. You're going to go ahead and say it. And I think he's got reasons to think she could be insecure. And so to me, there's a romanticism there of him acknowledging that he knows that she's sincere. Um, yep. Those are my two theories. Tell me why uh, I'm wrong. Tell me what I'm missing. Because I probably well, am. <laughs> I'm probably just trying to hold on to I that mean, thing I loved from my childhood. I'd be like, no, no, you're probably right. It's sexist and terrible, but I don't want to let go of it. Well, I mean, yes, he is. He's the pushy jock, like I said, but she could have feelings like she she could eventually start to feel that way about him. Like she looks at him as a a natural leader, a strong guy, a great help. Like, she looks at him in a positive light, but he's not giving her time 
to let that build and, and come to understand that on her own. He's just like, this is how you feel. Deal with it. And like, that's, that's problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but there are like, he never takes the time. It's always about her and how she feels about him. It's never how he feels about her. Yeah. No, that's, that's very and true. whenever, like whenever he's about to, about to leave on Hoth, he says, like, he looks at her as if to say, like, as if he's going to, to say, like, I'm going to miss you or, you know, it, I don't know that I actually want to leave. He just looks at her, has that look, and then just get, like, turns on his asshole and, <laughs> and says, oh, yeah, well, don't get all mushy and emotional on yeah. me. I think that's also a very legitimate reading of the scene. You know, I think it's, it's, yeah. um, and here's one again where, like, I didn't get it as a kid. I was just like, oh, that's a weird thing to say. And I remember asking my mom and her kind of chuckling a bit. And like, like I'll tell you when I was older. And then like I got to be yeah. a teenager and I was hanging out with a lot of people. And I met, and I don't think this is gendered, but just, you know, I was in a very straight crowd. This was the 90s. And, and this is people I hung out with. You know, a lot of the teenage geeks who I knew who were women were just like, oh, they would swoon talking about that scene and how it's the most romantic thing they'd ever seen. Um, and I was like, wait, really? <laughs> Um, and this is like, you know, a lot of what I'm saying is like what was explained to me about why that, why that scene feels so, it's such a perfect, uh, response to the, I love you. Um, yeah, I, I might. Well, and, and as far as that scene entirely, like it's still like, he's falling back to that where he's focusing everything on her emotions. Yeah. And when she says, I love you, he's like, I've been telling you this the whole movie yeah and he's just like i know and it's 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 i love you too but it's not it's i've known this the whole time you haven't accepted it i maybe have pushed it into you but i do know that it's there now and if i don't you know if if i don't say i love you too then you never have to hear it and you don't have to be hurt by me being frozen in carbonite and taken away and never see me again. Hmm. That's just, I, I could see that as a reading. I, I feel like he knows that, that he is saying it back just in his own screwed up, you know, pirate kind yeah, of a way in his scoundrel you way. Know? Scoundrel. I like the sound of that. I, I think the one other thing there is that I think you're right. This could be an incredibly cocky line for him being like, I know, you know, bitches love me. What am I going to say? Like, th- no, the look on his face shows that it's not that sort yeah, of cockiness. He's not cocky in the slightest. It, this is like, I feel like it's the first time that he's really let his walls down with her, you know, and that he's being totally vulnerable in that moment, even though you're right, his words are not vulnerable in the slightest. Um, yeah. And that that's well, he's, he's putting on a brave face for Boba. Yeah. And for, and for himself and for Chewie, um, you know, so yeah. much of it. Yeah. Fans there especially, let us know what you think. Because I think that it's, it's, it's one scene, even, even as I talk about it, like I, I think you're helping me realize that probably I'm holding it on to it a little bit too much because I just love it so much. Um, but that it's, <laughs> it's one of those scenes that really has, has – it's beautifully iconic but also has not really aged well in some ways. Um, and then that's okay. I mean I think like Casablanca is still to me the most romantic movie I've ever seen. Um, it's also horrifically misogynist and, misogynistic and sexist and has a lot of tropes that have not aged well in the slightest. Um, well, you know, it, <laughs> uh, the movie is kind of the creator of those tropes. Yeah. I mean, 
No, but I mean in terms of like uh, sexist tropes about men and women. But no, you're right. Like, oh yeah, I, I've watched Casablanca with people who hadn't seen it before, and they were like, "Oh, this movie is so tropey." Like all these things, like them walking away into the sunset, saying they're friends. Everyone does that. It's like, no, no this movie started that. <laughs> <laughs> they did it because of this movie. I know. I know. Um, what's your take on the space worm? It's, um. Not plausible. <laughs> what does it eat? How does it get so big eating food of this kind? It's in space. There is no organic matter. You know, it's funny that like that's the thing that you gravitate to because I'm like, what atmosphere is on that asteroid that yon space worm could survive in? Yon space worm, and let alone that a couple people could wander around walking on its tongue, which, by the way, if you have any idea how acidic human saliva is, like, think about what it does to food. I don't think you could walk on this tongue without your feet dissolving in 10 seconds. But also, <laughs> how is it warm enough that they're okay with just an air mask? Like, Right. There's a lot of moisture in here. doesn't make any sense. Not to mention, like, does it sleep with its mouth open? That's what it looks yeah. like. It's snoring. It's it's this this is kind of where the like I, I used to think it was with the um oh what the fuck is the name of the monster in um Jedi that they fight at the, the Rancor. The Rancor. I used to think that it started with a Rancor, but really no, it starts more here. Like there's an obsession now with big, big, angry monster space monsters, you know, and we get it in all the prequels, we get it with the Rancor, we get it with um uh, somewhat in some of the later movies that we just don't need. You know, it's the the big fish that are chasing them in, in Phantom Menace. Um, it's a cute idea of, like, the cave that isn't really a cave, but it just, when you think about it, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. With it not being, like, there being no atmosphere, there being no realistic things for this worm to eat. Um, you know, honestly, I mean, if we're talking, like, physics and biology none of the sorry if we're talking biology and physics like physics especially there shouldn't be any sound going on from any of the explosions or the the uh starfighters flying by none of that should make noise um and it would have been neat if like okay so the thing snores you know it's snoring with its mouth open or whatever while it's sleeping you don't hear anything until like they're flying in you don't hear anything you don't hear anything and then once the Falcon sets down and you've got that, that physical connection so that vibrations can go through the ship, then you hear a snoring sound that would have been kind of fun <laughs> and kind of like more accurate. But they put on a mask and then walked outside and they should have like immediately depressurized. Yeah. Um. Because there shouldn't be any atmosphere. And he's like, there's a lot of moisture here. There also should not be a thing if you're on an asteroid with no atmosphere. <laughs> and like, maybe there's some sort none of, like, of this makes any sense. atmosphere to the creature within itself. Although if its mouth is gaping no. open, that doesn't make much sense. <laughs> and you know, those teeth, like that mouth, that, that, I saw it. That cannot make a seal. Yeah. There's no, there's no creating a vacuum there. Yeah, it, it's you think uh, about like our teeth and our teeth like our two flat lines. This is a bunch of spikes that like close together. Um, yeah, that's that's not going to work very well. 
Um, a couple of other just little things in terms of Han and Leia. Um, you know, the whole point at the end of the last movie was that the, the thing that motivates Han to turn back is to save his friends. And I love that we see that that part of his character is still very much alive and well in that he's the one willing to risk death to go save Luke. Um, it, it just, I think, it was, uh, I think I've referred to him before that Han to me is the grumpiest of grumpy Hufflepuffs. Um, because he is a Hufflepuff. He will do anything to save his friends. He will just be so yep. mad about it. Um, and I feel like we really see that at the start of this movie, just in terms of like, yeah. you know, he has this death mark. He has to go back to Jabba, but this is what motivates him. Let's speaking of Jabba and, and having to do that. I, I like in this movie that they don't just completely ignore the fact that he still has a debt to Jabba mm-hmm. that he has to pay. I, I like that, you know, him coming back and getting a medal and, and saving the Republic or whatever, like all of that's all well and good, but like, dude, you still got debts to pay. Like we still got a bounty on your head. This part of this part, I, of the I like that. Stop. They didn't forget about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And having that be a, a major motivator for him as far as where he needs to go, where he wants to go. And then ultimately where he ends up, I, I think is a, is a great, part of of the story where you're part of or it's great writing great storytelling Mm -hmm. as far as how do we like how do we have something bad happen to han too like we need something bad to happen to literally everybody at the end of this movie what what's what do we do for han well he still had a bounty right yeah it's also why that's also why i think that scene um why i continue to hate the addition of jabba to the first movie because the original way it's told, we hear about Jabba because of the, the conflict between Greedo and, and Han. In this movie, we hear, you know, like, Boba Fett, who looks terrified, like, he wants to make sure to keep Jabba happy. You know, all these people are trying to keep Jabba happy. We have built the menace of Jabba up over two movies so that when he's finally revealed in the third, there's all this payoff. But when we've seen him be ridiculous and make puns and let Han walk on his tail without immediately killing him in the first movie, all of that's gone. Like, it just takes away. Yeah. There's so much menace, off-screen menace, which is such a hard thing to pull off to, to, to Jabba that's built in this movie that just all goes away. Yep. And, you know, like, Han talking to him the way that he did and saying, like, no, you're not getting 15% or you're not getting 25%. Like you're not in a place to bargain. Yeah. The fact that Han feels this like not a guy to bargain Han, with that, that Han feels like Java can be pushed around shows that yeah, he doesn't have any of the power that he should actually have. Um, right. right. We are introduced to Boba Fett in this movie who, um, you know, I'm still like Boba Fett is so built up to be so damn cool. And like, I'm enjoying the Mandalorian stories, but you go back and watch it. You're like, all right, he's a bounty hunter who figures out the garbage trick and looks a little bit badass. Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> and he goes down like a little bitch yeah. in the third movie. Like, to me, I want to know about, like, the lizard man guy with the, the fangs on his feet that hang over the edge of the deck. Like, that's the guy I want to learn yeah. more about. That guy looked cool yeah, as hell. he did. He growls. It's kind of awesome. Yep. And we saw, um, oh, what was it? We saw Taika Waititi bot. Yeah. He's yep. back. That, that's an addition. <laughs> maybe I don't that's mind. where like, he started. Things like that, I have no problem with. You know. Excuse yep. me. Yep. Um. All right. Let's um, oh, say, go ahead. 
And you know, with with uh, with Boba, we actually we saw him for like all of two seconds in the first movie. I, I believe it was part of the additions. Um, in that Boba or in that uh, in the Jabba scene, mm-hmm. like once Jabba leaves, Boba's one of the guys that's with right. him. And I feel like that's I don't know that that feels forced. Yeah, wrong. I mean, it, I think it's supposed to be. Boba Fett does not work for Jabba. He's a bounty hunter. And then when right. he... Jabba is so impressed by him bringing Han that he basically gives him this, like, really cushy job. And it's like, oh, look, I can, like, you know, flirt with Twilight dancers and, like, have a good life here. Sure, I'll stick around. But yeah, him just being, like, a henchman for Jabba takes so much away from that character as well. Yeah. <laughs> Lucas did a whole lot to undercut his own characters. Yeah. It's... It... it, it it's one of those things where you don't know if either a he didn't realize what he was damaging or like he didn't remember or just like is a whole bunch of this movie accidental genius, you know, or people who took the bones of what Lucas did and filled in the details better than Lucas ever could. Um, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, anything else on Han and Leia or can we wrap, move on to uh, the, the true star of this movie? <laughs> Tell me who the true star of Lando this movie Calrissian. is. What, what's your take on uh, Mr. Lando, smooth <laughs> as space silk? I don't think he's that smooth. <laughs> I like his capes. I uh, I kind of find him to be an asshole, though. Like, he's in it for the money. He's in it for, like, he betrays them the first chance he gets. Yeah. Like, yeah, he comes around at the end. And he gets the he gets the Falcon out of there and he gets, you know, Leia out of there. And I guess he gets Luke out of there, kind of. <laughs> yeah. But just I, I, uh, he's he's a bit of a prick. Yeah. I mean, and even me before that, like we're talking about the Han stuff and how it aged. I get that in the early 80s, Lando was like this incredibly flirtatious, romantic, charming character. And maybe there are many who still see him that way. And I want to honor and respect that. To me, he comes off as the kind of sleazy that makes my skin crawl. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, again, like, I don't think I thought that 10 years ago. But watching it now, I'm just like, oh, God, this is so terrible. Um, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that he would have been a friend of, of Han Solo back in yeah. the day. You know, because the skis ball would definitely hang out with the jock. I, I am, though, a little... I feel like, I mean, the, the, heel, the heel turn, the, the hero turn, the face turn that he makes, the opposite of a heel turn... In many ways, it's a more extreme version, but I think it's the same. It's the same thing that Han went through. You know, he thinks that he's doing the right thing. Objectively, he is doing the best thing for him and his people of like making this deal with the Empire. He comes to realize though that the Empire can't actually be trusted, and I don't know why he didn't know that to begin with. But fair enough. <laughs> um, but the fact that he's just like once he sees that, it's like nope, I'm I'm going to fight against them, and he knows that it's not a fight well, he's guaranteed to win. He very well may lose. Um, I don't know if it earns him redemption entirely, although the movie certainly tells us that it does. But no. but I, I do think like that there's some real power to that and that it's a real, you know, because it's not, he's not forced into it. He goes back. He he puts himself on the line and he, once he throws himself into it, he throws himself into it 100%. Yeah, but like he only throws himself into it because the thing, like the deal didn't work out the way that he thought it was going to. He was like, you got your guy, you're going to leave, right? You're going to leave? Yeah. You're leaving now, right? That's true. You're gone? And they're like, no, no, we're occupying. He's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> yeah. 
this isn't what I agreed to. No, we're rebelling. Yeah, no, it, it is out for his own good. And I do like that. Um, I think it would have played very differently if Leia and Chewie had been like, oh, he saved us. Cool. He's one of the good guys now. But the fact that he's like, cool, I just got you out. Look, I'm going to like take these cuffs off, off Chewie. And Chewie's like, cool, I'm going to choke you out now. Yeah, now I'm going to strangle um, you. And Leia is not at all like talking Chewie down. She's just like, aw, that's right. He did his yeah. best. Poor man. Break his neck, please. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tear his arms off and beat him to yeah. death with them. Um, and poor C-3PO has to talk them all out of it. <laughs> C-3PO in this movie. My God. He's like in the first movie, 3PO was such a dick to, to R2, but he's like, he's got, he's gotten to the point now where he's like, you know, good friends with him. Like, Oh, take care of yourself. Take care of master Luke. Take care of yourself. And he's like, he calls him a couple of names, but you know, he also says that he feels, um, he feels worried about him. So like three PO has come around, but he's at this point, he's no longer like standing up for himself. He's just like, uh, Han puts his hand over three PO's (laughs) mouth at one point. It's just like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And then he has the best (laughs) line shutting up, sir. Yeah. And like (laughs) Leia, when he's like trying to tell everybody what's wrong, like what's wrong with the Falcon, why they can't get to light speed. Like, the odds of, of facing down an Imperial destroyer, like <laughs> they're like, shut up. Leia tells him like, shut up. That's all he's there for is to be told to shut up. I, I will say shutting up, sir, actually is from new hope, not empire. Um, all right. He says it to uh, Lars, but yeah, no, definitely that whole theme is there. And he's so hot and cold on R2 in this wonderful way. You know, like at the very end, yep. he's like, Oh, R2, why are you having delusions of grandeur? Why are you trying to, like, fix the hyperdrive? Oh, you fixed the hyperdrive. You did it. You're wonderful. Um, You're the best. You know, and, yeah, he's really kind of cruel to R2, but in a way I kind of love, and I, I just find it very charming. And here's where I feel like yeah. the movie does something brilliant. And it's okay because they're droids. Yeah. But this movie does something brilliant, but then learns the wrong lesson from it because C-3PO being put together backwards by Chewie is brilliant, and it, it adds this very funny element, but also a little bit of pathos. But I feel like because of that, then, especially in the prequels, they kept trying to make C-3PO into slapstick. And it just never worked again. You know, it was like, they did it well yeah. in this, leave it the fuck alone. Right? Like, this was the one time they got to yeah. do it. Very much so. I mean, it's like C-3PO in this, like, from the first movie to this movie, somehow became the whipping mm-hmm. boy. Whereas before, he was... Or like even even in the beginning of this movie, he was somewhat useful in being a protocol droid yeah. and knowing a bajillion languages. He was like, "That's not a frequency that's used by the Alliance. That's probably Imperial, uh, or that's probably an Imperial encryption." And they're like, "Oh yeah, thanks. Thank you for that intelligent insight, C three PO." Well, I feel like we're not giving him enough credit though, because I think, and this is something the movie does well, is it highlights that as annoying he is. A big part of why Han gets into so much trouble is that he won't listen to him. You know, C-3PO keeps (laughs) warning him, like, you know, this is going to be a trap. The hyperdrive isn't working, like all these things. And C-3PO just won't listen. Um, Han won't listen. Yeah, Han won't listen. Which is why it's also funny that, like, when when R2 knows it, C-3PO won't listen to him. 
I mean, there's this whole chain of yeah. not trusting people. Um, <laughs> it's all about this movie is about no trust, yeah. uh, no trust being there. And then when there is trust in Lando, it gets betrayed. But luckily, when Lando trusted that the Empire was going to leave, he got betrayed. So it's fine. You know, I just realized there's that really cute little scene where Lando comes up to Han and is like, I can't believe you came back here after what you pulled. And then I was like, ha ha, I'm just joking. Of course we're friends. Of course you can trust me. Like, it's a really cute little moment between the two of them. But I had never even put this together. Knowing that Lando already knows that the Empire is there and is going to have to turn his friends over, he's 100% manipulating Han to get Han to trust him. Like, oh, that scene seems so much more sinister now. Oh. Yeah, Lando, or Lando is a real bad guy at this yeah. point. No, it's very true. It's very true. And it's it's uncomfortable. He can't be trusted. Um, He's skeezy with Leia. He's a dick to Han. He's manipulative. Yep. And then he he tries to tell them, like, no, it's fine because I'm turning against those guys. Like, no, man, you're in it for your own yeah. good. You'll betray us the second it's it's feasible. Yeah. Um, Bespin's gorgeous though. I do love the Bespin scene. Um, yes. There's one little line that I don't know why it bothers me so much, but it's just like, you know, Han is flying into Bespin and the, the Bespin ships are coming out there and being very aggressive. Um, you know, firing warning shots, tell him what to do. And then finally they give him the order. Do not deviate from your current path. And Han immediately takes a 90 degree hard bank left. Like, and it's one of those times where, like the special effects and the dialogue just don't quite match up and that's fine. But watching it now, I was just like, really? That's so obviously wrong. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> but I mean, I think, I think they do that a lot. I think there's a lot of times where there's techno babble that they say and there's stuff that happens on the screen and the two just don't match up and that's eh, fine. Yeah. But I mean, at least along with the, the jargon, there's like some slapstick yeah, with it. That's definitely true. Cause Han was, Han was like, give me the Hydro Spanner. And then, like, Chewie brings over the whole toolbox and he just sets it down, like, you figure yeah. it out, dude. I don't know what the hell Hydro <laughs> and then it Spanner falls on is his in head. here. And then it falls on his head. I, I think, if nothing else, this is the funniest of all nine movies. Uh, all ten movies, even. Um, you know, it's it's weird to say that, too, because it's so dark at the end. Yeah. But it, it almost has to be. It feels like Thor Ragnarok in that respect, in that it it deals with such dour material at the end. It has to be funny right. to, to offset that. I think because of it is it's not a often. I, I don't often love comedies. I mean, sometimes I do, but a lot of times I feel like in a comedy, what they're sort of saying is don't try and care about the characters because every character moment is just a way to set up the next joke. And right. I can think that's hilarious for a three minute Saturday night live sketch. Um, I don't want to see that for a two hour movie. Um, or maybe even a 25 minute, you know, TV show. Um, this one, none of it's slapstick. It's not, we're going to have the characters break character to be funny. We're going to show you like in this universe, real people doing real things and real people are funny. You know, the characters tell jokes because the characters have senses of humor. Um, I, I just think it's really well done. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess we need to move on to Queel. Yeah. <laughs> We do get the Ugnots, Ug- right? That's the name of their characters? Uh, yeah. I believe that's... It's Ugnots, Ugnots, yeah. 
I don't remember. For anyone who doesn't understand um, what we're talking about, the um little kind of like wrinkled up dwarf people who are manning the machinery on Bespin. Um, and they don't, I mean, there's nothing about them. Like they sell some toys, but we know nothing about them. Um, they're playing keep away with three PO. Yeah, head. exactly. Um, but later one, like one of the main characters of the, the first season of Mandalorian Queel, um, not main and that he appears in like only a couple episodes, but a very important recurring character and that he's one of those and that we, we learned that like they were all slaves and they didn't want to do this, but that they could earn their freedom. Um, and yeah, it's really fun watching them again, knowing that we get a great character out of them. Yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> it's really cool to look in the background in that scene and see like, there's several pieces of, uh, that line of bot that, um, or the line of droid that Taika Waititi bot was, there's several pieces, several heads of those in the background. Oh, interesting in that workshop that's really cool i guess they didn't self-destruct yeah good point maybe they're take, taken apart instead of allowed to blow up um <clears throat> two other kind of things that i wanted to say just like fun lines um one is we talked about how vader kills that second guy and i the scene of we just see him being like i will go give my apology directly and in the original in this one they throw in a stupid like watch the shuttle fly but whatever in this one we cut away and the next time we cut back to it is that body hits the floor and Vader just says, apology accepted, Captain Nita. Like, it's such a menacing, beautiful line. <laughs> um, I, I think it's like, you know, it's totally throwaway. It doesn't matter the plot, but it's one of my absolute favorite moments of this movie. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of favorite moments in this movie that are um just absolutely inconsequential as far as overall plot, but they really like, they really flesh out yeah. the, the emotion and, and all of the character of everybody. So what are some of yours in this movie? Uh, particularly when, when Han is going to uh, get ready to look for Luke uh, on Hoth, mm-hmm. when everybody's like, no, no, it's fine. He probably came in the South entrance and Han's just like, no, it's, cold out there it's it's a bad thing like luke would check in luke would say something i'm going to go look for him damn it and then he sends a guy to go check he's just like go check and then come back and tell me (laughs) and he goes walks around somewhere and then the guy actually comes back like the guy actually comes back he's like master or you know mr skywalker didn't check in he's just like i'm going out there and like it could have been it, like he could have right at the beginning could have been like, I'm going out to find Luke because the plot demands it of me. But we got to see that little character moment of him just like, I don't want to go out there if I don't have to, but I can, I'm damn sure going to make yeah. sure that I have to. And then if I do, then I'm going to go out there. It's very good. Yeah. Cause it's, it's him like, you know, double checking before going out. Another thing I get from it, and I think this is probably 100% headcanon but it's a fun way to look at it is remember all of these people have known nothing about Luke Skywalker, except he blew up the death star single-handedly as they understand it. He got some help from Han and he's this like magic sword waving ninja part of a religion. They thought has been dead forever, AKA 20 years. Um, and, and so I do wonder if part of it's that they're like, it's Luke. He's fine. Like, Luke's a god. You know, he can survive anything. <laughs> Han and Chewie, because even Leia meets him later, 
are the only people who know him as that scared little farm boy from Tatooine. So Han yeah, still has Han a, like... Han has seen behind the yeah, curtain. Yeah, Han is still like, no, he's still just a dumb kid. You know, I got to go save him. Well, he keeps, like, in the in in that scene in Hoth, he keeps calling him kid yeah. repeatedly. And, you know, it's it's pretty well established that, like, you know, the, the crawl says that Luke's in charge, and Luke seems like he's being all hoity-toity, like, yeah, yeah, I am in charge. And Han's just like, no, you're still a dumb yeah. farm boy. I mean, I think part of this movie is that we have this rebel alliance that kind of has a military hierarchy to it. And then Luke and Han show up and no one has any idea what the hell to do with them. So by Jedi, they just make them generals, you know, <laughs> like yeah, right. Lando's also a general for reason. I guess he fights some important battles to win back his honor between them. The battle uh... of Net, uh, Tanab. I think it's Tanab. Um, you know, we'll get to that in Jedi. Um, the other cool thing I thought was, um, the shot at the very end of the movie, I realize is the first time in the Star Wars movies that we see the Rebel fleet. You know, at the end of oh, yeah? New Hope, we saw the X-Wings and Y-Wings, but we didn't see actually any of the big ships. Um, we saw Leia's ship that gets uh, pretty much stomped on by, by the um, by the Star Destroyer, but we've never actually seen the whole Rebel Alliance fleet until that last shot, and it, it, it hits me powerfully. Yeah. I thought it was a little bit weird that they were looking out at a like a galaxy like are they outside the galaxy <laughs> did they did they it's leave the 80s carl sagan hadn't written any book yet um stephen hawking's <laughs> i think hadn't been published yet you know people they it was just it was a space swirl it looked cool sure <laughs> this sure. is space opera you know, it is not science fiction you know <laughs> i've been i've been talking about the physics of this movie the whole time and forgetting entirely that it is space opera and that we have to completely do away with our uh, our disbelief we have to fully embrace suspension of disbelief I mean, you're not alone i'm the one who wants like a xeno xenobiological paper on the uh, anatomy of space worms and tauntauns and how they survive in their relative environments and atmospheres so like i'm with yeah. you i've got some scientific questions i just don't think we're getting yeah, any answers. i want to know about twi'lek like the the planet that Twi'leks come from is uh, tidally locked with its sun. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So part of it is just like scorched hellscape, and part of it is just always in darkness. And there is, or like frozen land in darkness on the other side. And the band where it's twilight around the uh, around the edge, like the the division between that, is where all life on that planet lives. Okay. I'm like how <laughs> how i mean it's a really cool concept but like how yeah, it's um you know i mean one thing we establish is that i don't think there is a single planet that has ever visited anywhere in the star wars universe that is more than one um biosphere i think is the, like that is more than one environment you know like think about like on our own world yeah like, there are no biomes. biomes yeah thank you like all of all of dagobah is a yeah. swamp it's a swamp Entire planet. planet. All of Hoth is an is a nice planet. the The moon of Endor. It's not Endor itself. The moon of Endor is a forest moon. Um, you yep. Know. Well, I mean, they call it the forest moon of Endor. Yeah. Coruscant is just a city, which I get. That's how they built it. But um, yeah that that was kind of terraformed. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, city any other forms? kind of last odds and ends before we wrap up this movie? 
Nah, man, let's get out of here. We've been here for almost yeah. two hours. Where, where, where does it fit for you in terms of you know, uh, relative to all the other movies we've seen so far? Uh, you know, I, I stand by that it is, like, troublesome though it may be with whatever problems I have with it, nitpicks over science. I mean, nitpicks over science go through the whole series, but um, troubling though it may be for some characters, it is still, I would say, in the top... I would say it's probably the yeah. best. Um, just because I don't have... Like, I don't have this deep attachment to the first movie of, you know, Luke's the hero and Luke's, you know, Luke getting shit on in this movie, you know, puts me in a in a bad mood and I don't like that. Like, I love how this movie goes with it being such a such a different ending yeah. for a, a, a genre film. You know, I don't think that before this movie, I don't think it had been done where the bad guy wins and we just have to deal with that for a few years, a few years before the next one comes out. Yeah. I mean, it's very much infinity war, you know, it's that kind of like, we're going to end on a down note and, and hopefully give you some hope. Um, I I think I get that. Like I said, I think, um, just of the movies we've seen so far, it is, you know, gun to my head. I have to pick which one I want to watch for the the rest of time. It's not empire. It's going to be rogue one or a new hope. And then last Jedi comes later. Um, but I, I think that it is, if you ask me which is the best, I, I have to say Empire. You know, I just think that it is a much better yeah. made, better paced, better written movie. Um, I think Rogue One gives it a real run for its money, but I think certainly so than, than A New Hope. And it's because oh, Lucas yeah. didn't it's, write it directly. It's not a far and away. Sorry. I, I'll yeah. say, yeah, just because I think Lucas didn't direct it. Di- L- yeah. Lucas wasn't as directly involved in the creation of it as he was in A New Hope. Yeah, like looking at the um, the directing and writing credits, his name is not on there except for story. Yeah. And it just says story by. And the same thing holds for Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. No, no, he did the screenplay. Yeah. Never mind. And I think that's why Sorry. it's a little bit weaker. You know, I think that Lucas was, he reminds me a lot of, of here I'm going to really piss off some of our geek audience. Um, but I Do compare it. him to J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I think what Tolkien did in terms of world building of the, Middle Earth and the creation of languages and the orcs and the elves and the dwarves. And like, I mean, he basically established D&D, you know, like all of the tropes we have of elves as tall and thin and ethereal and dwarves as, you know, big beards and round people and and miners and, and loyal fighters and stout. I mean, these things come from different mythologies, but he really established them in like Western canon and basically like set up Dungeons and Dragons like the the halflings are basically hobbits just without being sued um but he's not a very good writer i don't think i don't find like the the lord of the rings books to be page turners and there's just an awful lot of exclamation points and there's a very little female characters and there's a lot of like i feel like in a lot of ways uh peter smith told those stories he took the stories that tolkien came up with but peter smith peter Peter Jackson. jackson sorry um, Peter Jackson told them far better than Tolkien did. Um, and part of that's on screen versus book, but it's in, and again, 10,000 fans are going to write in and tell me I'm wrong, but I think the same thing is true with Lucas. I think Lucas is amazing at world building and amazing at plotting out stories, but he needs to give the outline to someone and then have someone else act. You know, he needs to say Luke and Leia need to hit this beat and Han and Solo need to hit this beat and this beat and that beat. 
I don't think Lucas would ever come up with, I love you, I know. Like, I just think someone else needs to write in the actual words for him. He would come up with something along the lines of, I hate Sam. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, wait. He did. (laughs) Yep. He (laughs) sure did. Um, You know, like... It's great. You know, you, you say that about, about Tolkien. And I was like, no, he's, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Cause I remember there being one specific chapter where they were on the way, like the, the hobbits were on the way to Bree. Um, and they, they peaked a hill and could see down into a valley or into like, you know, rolling fields and whatnot. There were like two whole pages describing what they saw on the way to Bree. Like, this was right before the Old Forest. I think it was chapter 6. Um, right before they got into the Old Forest, but they could see all of everything, and, like, there was such beautiful language involved in it, and, like, I could see the countryside myself, because I read all of these words that Tolkien wrote about it, and then there were four chapters of the Old Forest where I'm like, none of this matters! (laughs) None! None of this matters! Tom Bombadil has no point... And he's beloved. I know so many people were so angry when Tom Bombadil was was cut from the story. But yeah, when I was, I, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's kind of similar to um, my feelings about A New Hope being better than Empire. You know, I didn't read the the Tolkien books as a kid, so I didn't fall in love with them the way you do. And I think if you fall in love with something as a kid, nothing's ever going to be better. You know, you can say it's objectively better. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, I think it's the people who are like. Tom Bombadil is the best. He should have been in the movie. I think it's to me, it's the equivalent of my thinking New Hope is better. And I like and that's what I mean is I don't think they're wrong. I think I have the right to say I'd rather watch a New Hope than Empire because it has more emotional resonance for me. But it doesn't make it better. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So with that, now that we have uh, lost any uh, hardcore Tolkien fans, any other last wrap up things before we close out? Yeah. <laughs> right. We've killed our our Star Wars fan base and our Tolkien fan base. We're we're doing great. Exactly. Man. Well, um, thank you all so much to the fans. Um, you can find out more about this podcast on the, if you go to strandedpanda.com, that's also where you can find links to our Facebook, our Twitter, our email. <coughs> Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear your feedback. Let us know what you agreed with. Let us know what you didn't. Is this your favorite movie and why? If there's other folks who it's not your favorite. Let us know why. Um, you can find all that on strandedpanda.com. Jeff, what else can they find on Stranded Panda? A few things, you know. Um, I am the... The co-host, co-creator of, uh, well, you know, the network, but also the MCU cast, the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast being the kind of our flagship of the the whole thing where we talk about all things Marvel Cinematic Universe. And man, we've got some stuff upcoming to talk about. There is a WandaVision trailer that got put out recently. And oh, my goodness gracious, we got to throw down on that. Have you already seen it? Okay, I was going to say, I saw the news about it come out while we were recording, and I was going to say, I appreciate your dedication to this verse, that you didn't halfway through recording been... say, Matthew, there's a new MCU trailer. I'm sorry, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been really difficult. I, I greatly appreciate your dedication to the art. Thank you. Um, oh. But yeah, there's so much good stuff. There's stuff on the MCU. Um, our colleagues in the DC universe have been knocking it out of the park lately, talking a lot about... Um, the Snyder Cut, upcoming uh, films and TV shows, doing great stuff as fans, and also talking about some of the larger issues, going deep on the Ray Fisher stuff and all that controversy and uh, why they stand with Ray Fisher. 
Um, there's great podcasts about Lovecraft Country, about the boys that Jeff and I are on. On Binge Assemble, they're actually now going to do a whole series on the um, DC uh, movie-verse, uh, starting with Man of Steel, doing all these things to build up for Wonder Woman 1984. Basic, which just got delayed which just again. just got delayed again. But basically, if you're sick and tired of things getting delayed, you don't have new content, what's better than to go back and watch one of your favorite movies, watch one of your favorite TV shows again, but then get to hear really interesting, smart, funny people. I mean, getting to hear interesting, smart, funny people talk about it would be great, but it's also great to listen to our podcasts, uh, which we think are also pretty darn entertaining. <laughs> um, I love the self-deprecation. Exactly. Well, especially because it's everybody else I'm deprecating, but it's mostly me as well. Um, but yeah, anyway, check all those out. There's great podcasts there, great stuff to listen to. Let us know what you think and have a great day. I have spoken. Yes, you have. <laughs> no.